Section 13 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Natter. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Venetians and Crusaders Take Constantinople. A.D. 1204 to 1261. Plunder of the Sacred Relics. A.D. 1204. By Edwin Pierce. Part 2. The Venetian advised Niketas to leave, in order to prevent himself from being imprisoned, and to save the honor of his daughters. Niketas and his friends accepted the advice. Having clothed themselves in skins or the poorest garments, they were conducted through the city by their faithful friend as if they were his prisoners. The girls and young ladies of the party were placed in their midst, their faces having been intentionally smeared, in order to give them the appearance of being of the poorest class. As they reached the Golden Gate, the daughter of a magistrate, who was one of the party, was suddenly seized and carried off by a crusader. Her father, who was weak and old, and wearied with a long walk, fell, and was unable to do anything but cry for assistance. Niketas followed, and called the attention of certain soldiers who were passing, and after a long and piteous appeal, after reminding them of the proclamation which had been made against the violation of women, he ultimately succeeded in saving the maiden. The entreaties would have been in vain, if the leader of the party had not, at length, threatened to hang the offender. A few minutes later, the fugitives had passed out of the city, and fell on their knees to thank God for his protection in having permitted them to escape with their lives. Then they set out on their weary way to Silivria. The road was covered with fellow sufferers. Before them was the patriarch himself, without bag or money, or stick or shoes, with but one coat, says Niketas, like a true apostle, or rather like a true follower of Christ, in that he was seated on an ass, with the difference that instead of entering the new Zion in triumph, he was leaving it. A large part of the booty had been collected in the three churches designated for that purpose. The marshal himself tells us that much was stolen, which never came into the general mass. The stores which had been collected were, however, divided in accordance with the compact which had been made before the capture. The Venetians and the Crusaders each took half. Out of the moiety belonging to the army, there were paid the fifty thousand silver marks due to the Venetians, Two foot surgeons received as much as one horse surgeon, and two of the latter surgeons received as much as a knight. Exclusive of what was stolen, and of what was paid to the Venetians, there were distributed among the army four hundred thousand marks, or eight hundred thousand pounds, and ten thousand suits of armor. The total amount distributed among the crusaders and Venetians shows that the wealth of Constantinople had not been exaggerated. 800,000 pounds were given to the crusaders, a like sum to the Venetians, with the 100,000 pounds due to them. These sums had been collected in hard cash from a city where the inhabitants were hostile, and where they had in their wells and cisterns an easy means of hiding their treasures of gold, silver, and precious stones, a means traditionally well known in the East. Abundance of booty was taken possession of by the troops which never went into the general mass. Sismondi estimates that the wealth in specie and movable property before the capture was not less than twenty-four million pounds sterling. The distribution was made during the latter end of April. 
Many works of art in bronze were sent to the melting pot to be coined. Many statues were broken up in order to obtain the metals with which they were adorned. The conquerors knew nothing and cared nothing for the art which had added value to the metal. The weight of the bronze was to them the only question of interest. The works of art which they destroyed were sacrificed not to any sentiment, like that of the Moslem against images which they believed to be idols or talismans. No such excuse can be made for the Christians of the West. Their motive for destroying so much that was valuable was neither fanaticism nor religion. It was the simple greed for gain. No sentiment restrained their cupidity. The great statue of the Virgin, which ornamented the Taurus, was sent as unhesitatingly to the furnace as the figure of Hercules. No object was sufficiently sacred, none sufficiently beautiful, to be worth saving if it could be converted into cash. Amid so much that was destroyed, it was impossible that there were not a considerable number of works of art of the best periods. The one list which has been left us by the Greek Logoteth professes to give account of only the larger statues which were sent to the melting pot, but it is worth while to note what were these principal objects so destroyed. Constantinople had long been the great storehouse of the works of art and of Christian relics, the latter of which were usually encased with all the skill that wealth could buy or art furnish. It had the great advantage over the elder Rome that it had never been plundered by hordes of barbarians. Its streets and public places had been adorned for centuries with statues in bronze or marble. In reading the works of the historians of the lower empire, the reader cannot fail to be struck alike with the abundance of works of art and with the appreciation in which they were held by the writers. First among the buildings, as among the works of art, in the estimation of every citizen, was Hagia Sophia. It was emphatically the great church. Tried by any test, it is one of the most beautiful of human creations. Nothing in Western Europe, even now, gives a spectator who is able with an educated eye to restore it to something like its former condition so deep an impression of unity, harmony, richness, and beauty in decoration as does the interior of the masterpiece of Justinian. All that wealth could support and art produce had been lavished upon its interior. At that time, and for long afterward, the only portion of a church which the Christian architect thought deserving of study. Internally, at least, says a great authority on architecture, the verdict seems inevitable that Santa Sofia is the most perfect and most beautiful church which has yet been erected by any Christian people. When its furniture was complete, the verdict would have been still more strongly in its favor. We have seen that to Niketas, who knew and loved it in its best days, it was a model of celestial beauty, a glimpse of heaven itself. To the more sober English observer, quote, its mosaic of marble slabs of various patterns and beautiful colors, the domes, roofs, and curved surfaces, with gold-grounded mosaic relieved by figures or architectural devices, are wonderfully grand and pleasing. End quote. All that St. Mark's is to Venice, Hagia Sophia was to Constantinople. But St. Mark's, though enriched with some of the spoils of its great original, is, as to its interior at least, a feeble copy. Hagia Sophia justified its founder in declaring, I have surpassed thee, O Solomon. And during seven centuries after Justinian, his successors had each attempted to add to its wealth and its decoration. Yet this, incomparably the most beautiful church in Christendom, 
at the opening of the thirteenth century, was stripped and plundered of every ornament which could be carried away. It appeared to the indignant Greeks that the very stones would be torn from the walls by these intruders, to whom nothing was sacred. Around the great church were other objects which could be readily converted into bronze, and the destruction of which was irreparable. The immense hippodrome was crowded with statues. Egypt had furnished an obelisk for the centre, Delphi had given its commemoratory bronze of the victory of Plataea. Later works of pagan sculptors were there in abundance, while Christian artists had continued the traditions of their ancestors. The cultured inhabitants of Constantinople appreciated these works of art and took care of them. In giving a list of the more important of the objects which went to the melting pot, Niketas again and again urges that these works were destroyed by barbarians who were ignorant of their value. Incapable of appreciating either their historical interest or the value with which the labor of the artist had endowed them, the crusaders knew only the value of the metals of which they were composed. The emperors had been buried within the precincts of the Church of the Holy Apostles, the site of which was afterward chosen by Mahomet II for the erection of the mosque now called by his name. Their tombs, beginning with that of Justinian, were ransacked in the search of treasure. It was not until the palaces of the nobles, the churches, and the tombs had been plundered, that the pious brigands turned their attention to the statues. A colossal figure of Juno, which had been brought from Samos, and which stood in the Forum of Constantine, was sent to the melting pot. We may judge of its size from the fact that four oxen were required to transport its head to the palace. The statue of Paris, presenting to Venus the apple of discord, followed. The Anemodulion, or servant of the winds, was a lofty obelisk whose sides were covered with bas-reliefs of great beauty, representing scenes of rural life and allegories depicting the seasons, while the obelisk was surmounted by a female figure which turned with the wind, and so gave to the whole its name. The bas-reliefs were stripped off and sent to the palace to be melted. A beautiful equestrian statue of great size, representing either Bellerophon or Pegasus, or, as the populace believe, Joshua on horseback, commanding the sun to stand still, was likewise sent to the furnace. The horse appeared to be neighing at the sound of the trumpet, while every muscle was strained with the ardor of battle. The colossal Hercules of Lysippus, which, having adorned Tarentum, had thence been transported to the elder and subsequently to the hippodrome of the new Rome, met with a like fame. The artist had expressed, in a manner which had won the admiration of beholders, the deep wrath of the hero at the unworthy tasks set before him. He was represented as seated, but without quiver or bow or club. His lion's skin was thrown loosely about his shoulders, his right foot and right hand stretched out to the utmost, while he rested his head on his left hand, with his elbow on his bent knee. The whole figure was full of dignity, the chest deep, the shoulders broad, the hair curly, the arms and limbs full of muscle. The figure of an ass and its driver, which Augustus had had cast in bronze to commemorate the news brought to him of the victory of Actium, met with the same fate. For the sake of melting them down into money, the barbarians seized also the ancient statue of the wolf suckling Romulus and Remus, the statues of a sphinx, a hippopotamus, a crocodile, an elephant, and others which had represented a triumph over Egypt. 
the monster of Scylla, and others, most of which were probably executed before the time of Christ. The celebrated statue of Helen was destroyed by men who knew nothing of its original. Then must be added to these the graceful figure of a woman who held in her right hand the figure of an armed man on horseback. Then, near the eastern Gauls, known as the Reds, stood the statues of the winners in the chariot races. They stood erect in their bronze chariots, as the originals also had been seen when they gained their victories, as if they were still directing their steeds to the Gauls. A figure of the Nile bull in deadly conflict with a crocodile stood near. These and other statues were hastily sent to the furnace to be converted into money. We may judge of the value and artistic merit of the bronze statues which were destroyed by the specimens which remain. The four horses which the Emperor Theodosius had brought from Chios and placed in the Hippodrome escaped, by some lucky chance, the general plunder, and were taken to Venice, where they still adorn the front of St. Mark's. The pillage of the relics of Constantinople lasted for forty years. More than half of the total amount of objects carried off were, however, taken away between the years 1204 and 1208. During the few days which followed the capture of the city, the bishops and priests who were with the crusaders were active in laying hands on this species of sacred spoil and the statement of a contemporary writer is not improbable that the priests of the orthodox church preferred to surrender such spoil to those of their own cloth rather than to the rough soldiers or the rougher venetian sailor on the other hand the highest priestly dignitaries in the army men even who refused to take of the earthly spoil were eager to obtain possession of this sacred booty and unscrupulous as to the means by which they obtained it the holy cross was carefully divided by the bishops for distribution among the barons gunther gives us a specimen of the means to which abbot martin who had had the german crusaders placed under his charge had recourse the abbot had learned that many relics had been hidden by the greeks in a particular church this building was attacked in the general pillage he as a priest searched carefully for the relics while the soldiers were looking for more commonplace booty the abbot found an old priest with the long hair and beard common then as now to orthodox ecclesiastics and roughly addressed him show me your relics or you're a dead man the old priest seeing that he was addressed by one of his own profession and frightened probably by the threat thought says gunther that it was better to give up the relics to him than to the profane and blood-stained hands of the soldiers he opened an iron safe and the abbot at his delight at the sight buried his hands in the precious store he and his chaplain filled their surplices and ran with all haste to the harbour to conceal their prize that they were successful in keeping it during the stormy days which followed could only be attributed to the virtue of the relics themselves the way in which dalmatius the sergi obtained the head of saint clement is an illustration of the crusader's belief that the acquisition of a relic and its transport to the west would be allowed as a compensation for the fulfilment of the crusader's vow that night was grievously affected that he could not go to the holy land and earnestly prayed god to show him how he could execute some other task equivalent to that which he had sworn but failed to accomplish his first thought was to take relics to his own country he consulted the two cardinals who were then in constantinople who approved his idea but charged him not to buy these relics because their purchase and sale were forbidden 
He accordingly determined to steal them, if such a word may be applied to an act which was clearly regarded as praiseworthy. The knight, in order to discover something of especial value, remained in Constantinople until Palm Sunday in the following year. A French priest pointed out to him a church in which the head of St. Clement was preserved. He went there in the company of a Cistercian monk and asked to see the relics. While one kept the persons in charge speaking with him, the other stole a portion of the relic. On leaving, the knight was disgusted to find that the whole head had not been taken, and, on the pretext that he had left his gauntlet behind, a companion regained admittance to the church, while the knight again kept the monk in charge in conversation at the door. Dalmatius went to the chest behind the altar where the relic had been kept, stole the remainder, went out, mounted his horse, and rode away. The head was placed with pious joy in the chapel of his house. He returned, disguised, some days after, to the church, in order, as he pretended, to do reverence to the relic, in order really to ascertain that he had taken the right head, for there had been two in the chest. He was informed that the head of St. Clement had been stolen. Then, being satisfied as to its authenticity, he took a vow that he would give the relic to the church of Cluny, in case he should arrive safely. He embarked. The devil, from jealousy, sent a hurricane, but the tears and prayers before the relic defeated him, and the knight arrived safely home. The monks of Cluny received the precious treasure with every demonstration of reverent joy, and in the fullest confidence that they had secured the perpetual intercession of St. Clement on behalf of themselves and those who did honour to his head. The relics most sought after were those which related to the events mentioned in the New Testament, especially to the infancy, life, and passion of Christ, and to the saints popular in the West. In the years which followed the conquest, Latin priests were sent to Constantinople from France, Flanders, and Italy to take charge of the churches in the city. These priests appear to have been great hunters after relics. Thus it came to pass that there was scarcely an important church or monastery in most western countries which did not possess some share of the spoils which came from Constantinople. For some years the demand for relics seemed to be insatiable, and caused first supplies to be forthcoming to an almost unlimited extent. The new relics, equally with the old, were certified in due form to be what they professed to be. Documents, duly attested and full of detailed evidence, sometimes doubtless manufactured for the occasion, easily satisfied those to whom it was of importance to possess certified relics, and throughout the West, the demand for relics which might bring profit to their possessors continued to increase. At length the church deemed it necessary to put a stop to the supply, and especially to that of the apocryphal and legendary acts which testified to its authenticity, and in 1215 the Fourth Lutheran Council judged it necessary to make a decree enjoining the bishops to take means to prevent pilgrims from being deceived. End of section 13